It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome to Sunday Civics. I'm L. Joy Williams, your host and neighborhood political strategist. And listen, as I told you this morning, we are talking about building black wealth. And I know a number of you have questions as to how can building back black wealth be a civic action or be government's responsibility? And if you are new to the show, <laughs> I can see why you would ask that question. But those veterans know that we've been talking about this for some time and that government in general, not only the federal government, but state and local governments created the problems or contributed to the problems of this huge racial wealth gap. And therefore, there are a number of policies and legislative strategies that these governments can do to address the issue. But there are also other entities working on this issue that includes philanthropy. And so we're going to have a conversation about this new initiative out of Bloomberg Philanthropies called the Greenwood Initiative. And they are announcing this latest investment that they are doing in the creation of a Black Wealth Data Center. So joining me to talk all about that is the head of the Greenwood Initiative at Bloomberg Philanthropies and the CEO of Prosperity Now, the organization that will actually incubate this Black Wealth Data Center. Welcome to the front of the class, Garnisha Ezediaro. Hi, Garnisha. Hello, Eljoy. And also Gary Cunningham from Prosperity Now. Good morning. Good morning, Eljoy. Thank you. So I I know we're going to talk about black wealth and we have time to talk about that. But first, because this is, you know, Sunday civics, I have to begin with the question of you telling us the story of your first civic action. And Gary, I want to start with you because I know you were itching to tell us the story (laughs) backstage and I had to say, thank you for the show. So I want you to share with us the story of your first civic action. Yeah, it just flashed in my mind. I hadn't gotten asked that question before, but I was about 13 and my uncle, who we were both from Minnesota, we had traveled to Oakland, California because he was in the Black Panther Party and we were helping someone he knew to run for Albany County Superintendent. And I didn't know anything about politics and there I was filling out all these cards and and doing a kind of greeting for his fundraisers. And it was a lot of fun, but I also knew I didn't understand why and what they were doing until my uncle actually sat down and said, this is about power. And this is about black people actually getting in roles of power. And then I started, it started to click for me what they were doing, but that was my first interaction with doing anything really civically. And then later I became a civics teacher that's how I started my career is, is working in alternative schools, particularly in black and brown communities, to teach them about, I wrote a lot of educational curriculum, doing very much what you're doing with this program. 
I love that. I love the civics. <laughs> We've never had somebody else be a civics teacher come to the show. That's amazing. <laughs> and you know, what's interesting is because anytime we hear the conversation about civics, it's always in a school setting. It's always teach young people and not making sure that we have resources for grown folks, some of who listen to the show, to be able to be either a reminded or be taught how these things are interconnected, how to participate not only in the political process, but in their own self-governance in general. And so I love that. I have another another civics teacher. So you, you can help teach the class this morning. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Garnisha, I need to hear your story. What was your first civic action? It's so interesting. I am sitting here wrecking my brain trying to think of the first and cannot crystallize something so vivid. But what I will say is that I grew up in Atlanta in the 80s, so people can do the math. And the benefit of that was that I grew up in a time where Mayor Jackson was just going out of office and Young was coming in as a mayor. We had, I tell people, when growing up in Atlanta during that time, we had a Black mayor, a Black police chief, a Black everything. Um, and, and in that, there were so many opportunities growing up from church, thinking about, and I consider even that a part of our civic environment, thinking about the, the you know, food service and prepping that alongside my grandmother and my aunts on, on weekends to, to walk in, to register for people to vote through our local NAACP chapters and things of that nature to being in, you know, our, my student government. I think I probably held office almost every year in student government from even elementary school. And so... I think, you know, we had so many opportunities where as a child, we were being groomed at that time to participate and take civic action, taught about, you know, the Roberts rules, as taught about, you know, how to how to vote and the importance of that and the legacy of even civil rights that I just considered it a part of my blood from the the absolute beginning because that is what we were doing growing up, you know, during that time in the South and in Atlanta in particular, where there's so much rich legacy of civic action, civic participation, that, you know, by the time I got to college and I'll end here, my first internship was at National Black Civic Participation, running a campaign to get people to vote and register under the, and, and Gary, I'm sure you know her, Melanie Campbell, who's been doing this work for, for such a long time. So, you know, it, it was amazing just, just having that, that upbringing. Okay. So I love, okay. So I got Gary being a civics teacher, right. And being able to co-teach this class. And then I have Garnisha. Garnisha, I, when I was at Demos, I began my career at Demos and where, what was I doing? Working with Melanie Campbell at National <laughs> Participation. You know, like we ought to, and you know, a, a number of us like talk about this Tracy Sturt event, a number of us who came from National, from this organization with Melanie Campbell, who we're going to have on the show in a couple of weeks. We got to have a brunch or something with her and all of the the, the extensions, exactly. all of her kids. Exactly. <laughs> and that's, 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 what she, that's what she calls us, right? Yes. You, you email Melody as an adult. She's like, wait, is this my garnisha? Yes, 
Right. You one, you belong to her, and two, you will always be twelve. El Joe, that is so funny. I was a funder of Demos for like ten years, and and Miles Rappaport, who was the leader for a long time, he he's still a mentor to me. Um, uh, so we still act regularly. So yeah, Demos, you know, was a one great organization. Two. Help it just help throughout the country all kind of people become motivated and activated around issues that concern social justice. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, I was there when it was only like 10 of us that worked at <laughs> the organization in the beginning. And it's so interesting to see, you know, how much reach it has now from that standpoint. So so that's great. So Garnisha, I want to start with you because you mentioned growing up in Atlanta, sure. growing up with a Black mayor, a Black police chief being steeped in community and being prepared to lead, right? So being in church and learning how to serve, being in your community via NAACP or any student government and learning the rules of how to operate in leadership spaces, all of that is training ground to participate in self-governance. Quite often when people talk about civics, they only talk about the volunteerism part and not, as Gary mentioned, it's about also accumulating power and being able to use that for the betterment of your community, right? People want to, want you to stay in the volunteer. They want you to pick up cans on the side of the road. They don't want you to have the ability to be able to write and influence policy. Two different Two different things from that standpoint. But talking about that, we can use examples, and a lot of us use examples of that time in Atlanta and how that leadership was able to economically Mm -hmm. use policy, use the city budget, use contracts and other things to actually build a black middle class that's, you know, has generations, (laughs) you know, being able to survive and thrive. Can you talk about the green? Greenwood Initiative, what its goal is, but also that connection, right, of that this is not just, you know, being able to make sure one family, you know, builds wealth, but that you're building wealth for an entire community. Absolutely. So that's a big question, Eljoy. And and so I'm going to, I'm going to try to move around and, and get that answer. So one, when we think about, let me just give you the history of the Greenwood Initiative, and then I'll talk about the neighborhood and the legacy and why it's called the Greenwood Initiative. So when Mike Bloomberg, who I work for at Bloomberg Philanthropies, was running for president, he developed and the team worked on this economic equity agenda. I would say it was some of the boldest work words that had ever been put on paper specifically focused on economic equity for Black families. And so the idea in this policy was how would we, if Mike were president, leverage the full power of the federal government to right so many wrongs and move towards intergenerational wealth for Black families in particular? And, and that was the name of this policy, they all have names, was, was the Greenwood Initiative in homage to the community in Tulsa that was destroyed, the Greenwood Business District in particular, that was destroyed now over 100 years ago in one night and in a number of hours. 
And I think what's important to mention there is that we we know it was horrific and it was one of the most violent disruptions of an intact, thriving community that that we've seen in our history in this country. And so I always say, no disrespect to Greenwood, but what I say is, you know, there are so many examples, horrific examples in our history. If you look at nearly a lot of the Black major cities, whether it's Atlanta or Memphis or you know, where in our history, there have been concentrations of the power that you mentioned, civic power, business power coming together. There have been concentrations of art, of music, of our livelihood that has been intentionally destroyed and underinvested in over time that leaves us in a place where when we think about wealth, we know that the wealth equation is not for Black people in particular, just assets minus debt. It's a much fuller calculation of how can we be in choice and agency about where we live? How can we be in power and, and have leadership positions and leverage in our communities? And how do we have the resources so that our families can not only thrive in this lifetime, but in the future? And, and that is the, the essence in which when Mike ended his campaign and said, you know, we don't want to leave this as a campaign promise for, for Bloomberg Philanthropies, but we want to take it back to the foundation and do the work to convert what was designed as a bold policy initiative to a philanthropic platform. And so that was now two years ago. We have invested over $250 million to date and are going to be working on this for a long time. And, you know, I have the exciting charge to lead that effort. We built a team of really dynamic people who, can, who I can work alongside. And we're partnering aggressively with organizations like Prosperity Now, who have been long-term organizations that have been committed to racial equity. So, you know, I can't say how, you know, lucky I feel to get to do this work, but it is purposeful and meaningful work because it, it, it is a robust charge to think about those communities like Atlanta, like Baltimore, like North Tulsa that, that, that need these resources and that have thriving, a history and legacy of thriving communities. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more on Sunday Civics. Schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Welcome back to Sunday Civics. Gary, I know that Prosperity Now is going to be the incubator, if you will, of this data center, the data part of this work. Can you talk to us, one, about Prosperity Now, but then two, why data is important into furthering this goal of closing the racial wealth gap? Yeah, and in the spirit of the conversation, I I think something that Garth Misha said that sparked for me was that many people don't realize that at the turn of the century in the 19th century, African-Americans in Oklahoma were the wealthiest African-Americans in the country. So black people, because of the enslavement of African-Americans by both Creek and Cherokee and other tribes, after the Civil War got land. 
And that land then turned into the wealth of Tosa. The reason I know all this is because I am a black freedman from the Creek Nation in Oklahoma. And my people, my people were in the, were, were, were massacred in that, in, in the Tosa riots. So it really has some deep meaning for me that's, you know, that's in my heart about my people. And I've got stories all over the place. I don't want to take us off, but it's so important to remember. In fact, Oklahoma was going to become the black state in America because blacks flocked there. Um, people don't know that history, and that history is so important about what black people could achieve. And so there were all these black towns that were wealthy, not just Tulsa, but there were like 20 or 30 black towns with films and other things that were thriving at that time. So I'll just put a bookmark on that. So you asked the question about data. And, you know, I, you know, I got up this morning and I have an Apple Watch and my Apple Watch keeps track and gives me a feedback and data all the time about how, how well I slept or when I, you know, how, how often I went to the gym, et cetera. And so I'm using data. We're all using data all the time as feedback for how we can improve. You go to the doctor. The doctor evaluates what your symptoms are and uses data to determine what kind of prescription you're going to get and how much you need to get in order to cure whatever you have. So, so data is something that we're using all the time in our day-to-day -day activities that gives us feedback in the environment about how to change or adapt. You go to a stoplight, you get feedback. So, so I just want to put it on that level in part because so often we talk about it like it's something that only academics use or, or that it's something that you have to do deep analysis around. But all of us are using data to change our behavior and or adapt to situations. In this case, with regards to black wealth, black people have been stripped of the wealth. So after Reconstruction, Actually, black people were, were doing much better economically and were on a trajectory to build wealth in America. But as all, uh, many of us know, Jim Crow, segregation, discrimination, the advent of policies that left us out. So when America created the greatest middle class in, in the world, we were left out of that picture. So we didn't participate in the federal for home ownership programs that got created in the 30s after the Depression. We didn't participate in the GI Bill, even though all of our, many of our forefathers participated in all of the wars that this country's had. We, when we came back, couldn't participate in those wealth building activities, including going to college. And at the same time, all of that was going on and black people were being segregated, redlined in communities. We also had major investments being made in land ownership for whites. We had major investments in educational institutions and universities and land grants. And we had free loans that were given to whites after Reconstruction to take over the rest of the country, if you will. And so these differentiations that go back that far manifest themselves in what we see today and happening in our communities. And Isabel Wilkerson does a great job in her book, Cass, talking about what happened 
even after reconstruction when we moved to the north. And so these, these conditions just didn't exist in the south, but many of our people moved from the south because of, of Jim Crow, Klan, et cetera, to, for better life. So, so I'll just give you an example. My grandfather moved from Oklahoma to Minnesota because there were jobs there. And for African-Americans, it was the greatest migration in the history of the world was the migration of Black people to the North. And we went there for jobs. But as time went on, all, most of those jobs, which were manufacturing jobs, dried up. And then they created welfare policy where men couldn't even be in the home. So I wanted to give some context that, that our, you know, in 1960, Black people had the highest marriage rate proportionately in the country. 70% of Black families were intact and had a mother and a father. Welfare policy got created. And with welfare policy, what you see is a change in the Black family structure. That change in the Black family structure, along with the drying up of the manufacturing jobs, changed the economic conditions for Black families. So my grandfather, he, he, had, he made about $9,000 a year. He had a house and a car and took care of six kids. And all of them went on to, to, to join the middle class. So I give that background. I know that was a long way to get there. But, but I'm trying to say data. The reason I know all this is because of data. So, so the, this data that we need is part of the structure that we need to create. Because if you don't measure it, you don't know what you're doing. You don't have access to it. You stay ignorant of what the conditions are. And we've been ignorant for far too long. It's now time in the Black Wealth Data Center. And I want to give it up to Garnisha and the, the Bloomberg Philanthropies and, and, and the Greenwood Initiative because this leadership is what we need at this point. We're moving into a time where data and information and technology is the next civil rights revolution in America. I, I appreciate that because, you know, I do sit around sometimes, you know, I have a, the family group chat and <laughs> those of us in our generation, Garnisha, are talking about like, why is it that granddaddy like was able he bought a house like we didn't want for, you know, I grew up middle class. I always have the joke of like, I don't know nothing about like the hood, like life, because that I, I'm sorry, <laughs> that was not. And it's not to brag. It's just like, don't 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 have me out in the streets acting like I can talk about <laughs> like what goes on in the quote hood. I don't, you know, get my middle class ass out of here because like, that's not. <laughs> Don't have me out here fronting. So I'd like to say it out publicly. So if you ever see me out fronting, you'd be like, no, no, no. I remember like, I remember that. But, you know, to think about like that, my grandfather, you know, could afford to buy a house. We had our little station wagon. We went on, you know, we went down south for vacation. I, you know, I was able to get school. Like I was able to do all of this and it didn't feel like they were struggling. It didn't feel like it felt like this was 
you know, this was normal, that this was right. Whereas I feel like in our generation, you know, every every month when my husband and I are sitting down going over things and we have two kids and things, it's just like, geez, Lord, Jesus. Yeah, <laughs> like this is a it. like it's a struggle. It took me, you know, 14 years to save for the down payment for us to get our house last year. Right. Like, so it's like it seems much more difficult. Yeah. And having the benefit of knowing that. I think one that no, you're not crazy. <laughs> there are like there are decisions that people made in government in this economy that results into where we are today. Sure. Number one is helpful, right? Like it feel like you you feel better. It's just like okay, I'm not crazy, and here's the data to back it up. Like Gary, <laughs> like Gary mentioned, yeah. right? But yeah. then there's the next step. Okay, now we have to actually make sure that the next generation, that our kids and our kids' kids are not experiencing the same thing. And how do we build wealth to get people to the next step? So, so Eljoy, I want to make a connection to what you, what you and Gary said here and, and bring us to why we need the Black Wealth Data Center. One is, you know, as someone who does know a little bit about the hood, (laughs) but I also know that you know, in my own experience, even in many families who were not growing up necessarily middle class, but still had intact families and families that, you know, my my grandparents moved out of a housing project to their home that we the family still owns now. And, you know, and that family remained intact. My grandparents were married for many, many, many years before my grandfather passed away. But the thing about it is it's the on-ramps. And that is what Gary talked about is that there were moments in our history where there should have been on-ramps for Black families to create and sustain wealth that would benefit the next generation. And and we didn't have the benefit of those on-ramps because there were policies and practices in place that prohibited us from taking advantage of, for instance, the GI Bill and taking advantage of these moments where people had on-ramps for housing, for jobs, for savings that, that, that we should have had and didn't. And I want to make a point that those things were not only, you know, a lot of times when we started this work with, with, with the Greenwood Initiative, people would say, yeah, slavery, you know, and they would talk about things that happened many, many years ago as if it's over. But there are current on-ramps that Mm. Black families still don't have. And there are examples as recently as when COVID had a PPP where Black businesses did not benefit at the same rates as other businesses. And so when we talk about those of us now that are have young children that are trying to do it, we don't have the benefit of the intergenerational wealth that should have been passed down because our grandparents didn't have the, the on-ramps to create wealth to pass it down in the same way that our white counterparts and that, that happened in other racial groups. So, so that is why when we were thinking about for the Greenwood Initiative, what are the many types of programs that we can invest in and stand up? One of the, the major things that we wanted to solve for through funding was the creation of this Black Wealth Data Center so that policymakers, leaders, advocates, nonprofit organizations that are working on this issue have the data at their fingertips 
to be able to look at these trends, to look at the insights, to be able to decide where and how to invest and be able to compare and correlate very different categories of data against each other. Because, you know, we have the example of people say education is the way. But if you look at education and correlate that with housing or correlate that, you know, with with business ownership, there's a lot of things that can emerge of what is really a lever that we can pull to create black wealth and to create a situation where black families and black institutions can pass this down from generation one generation to the next. Yeah. You know, Gary, although I'm joking and saying not knowing nothing about the hood, I, I'm president of I'm president of an NAACP branch here in Brooklyn. Right. So I'm president mm-hmm. of Brooklyn NAACP. And although it's my husband thinks it's debatable that we're solidly in the middle class, I think we are. <laughs> we, we debate this every month. But I do know from leading a NAACP branch that there is this disconnect. And Gardnisha mentions the on-ramps. There is this disconnect of opportunities of advancement, financial opportunities that exist for folks that are either at the poverty line working class folks, people who are underemployed, right? That if they can just get the right employment situation that pays them a livable wage, able to take care of their families, maybe provide benefits and savings and other things, that that would have a drastic change in terms of their family. And I'm thinking about this even now. I don't know if you see these headlines that a number of cities have where they say because of COVID, we had a lot of municipal and state workers retiring. And, you know, they have all of these vacancies in municipal and state government. And so me and my NAACP brain is y'all need to be out in the streets. (laughs) Like, you know, the DMV in New York is hiring. You know, that's a good job. (laughs) That's a good job, a good unionized, (laughs) like, job for someone, right? Like, to be, you know, I wish they was hiring when I was in my 20s. You know, I have a pension. I don't have one now. Right. So like thinking about those kinds of things, that there are these this disconnect of information, those on ramps that Garnisha is mentioning. How will having data and information be able to highlight those on ramps and sort of result in some direct change into communities? Well, Eljo, I'm loving this conversation. First of all, let me say that. So there's a difference between income and wealth. I want to be clear about that. You can actually be have a good job and not accumulate wealth. Wealth is about assets. And assets really mean, do you own a home? Are you investing in the stock market? Because these are various ways to actually create wealth. And so you're creating wealth and savings not only for yourself in this generation, but also for future generations. And and the reason that we get further and further behind is because we're not accumulating what what Garnisha talked about was intergenerational wealth. So I wanna separate that. So it's important, these things go together. You can't generate wealth unless you have income, but just because you have income doesn't mean you're generating wealth. And so that the, the issue of becoming in the middle class, 40 percent, little 41 percent, it might have creeped up to 42 percent. Now, black people own their own homes. The fact that it's such a small proportion compared to 
whites that own their home that are in the 70s and 80%, depending on where you're at in the country, is a huge gap of wealth, right? Because as Garnisha just said, her, her parents still are, they, that, that house that they got is still in their family, accumulating wealth over generations. And so I just want to be clear about that. So your question about, you know, why is this important? Well, it's important in And the data is important because without the data, we won't be able to tell whether we've made improvement, whether the policies that have been implemented have changed the conditions on the ground for our people in our community. So, you know, when we talk about, so there's different aspects to this. There is the policy piece from the government side, and that's important. But there's also the piece about our, our generating our own wealth. So if you're an entrepreneur and, and, and black people in America today are some of the fastest growing entrepreneurs, particularly black women in the country. And this has been a huge shift. So if we look at entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship has what they call externalities, meaning other effects, just not just that person getting wealthy because they're entrepreneurs, Black entrepreneurs in particular actually create wealth throughout the community because they hire disproportionately more of us. They actually serve in all kinds of capacities of leadership, et cetera. So, So we're focused on, okay, well, what do we know about entrepreneurship? What does the data say? And the data is scant, meaning there's hardly a lot there, but we know a few things. So for example, only 3% of African Americans, black people, have a business that's over a million dollars in revenue. So, so we know that those businesses are small and fragile, meaning that they, they, they employ two to three people at most. Most of them are storefronts. And so we're not competing in the economy of growth, economic growth at the same level as whites. But, but, but that's data that tells us that we need to focus our attention on growing capital, growing technical assistance and growing markets for people of color. There is data. Every, just about every state in the nation has done a disparity report to determine whether or not they're spending their money with Black communities, with Black people that are entrepreneurs. And what we're finding across the country that these programs that have been in place 50 years, uh, Black people are still not getting their share, our fair share as taxpayers of what local governments are doing, state governments are doing, and even the federal government is doing to ensure that we're getting the resources that can grow our community. So this data is so critical for us to improve the conditions of our community. So I'm just giving a few slight examples, but this, you know, these things are interrelated, meaning that, you know, uh, it's called cumulative causation, right? So it's not just one thing. It's not like, you know, Garnisha already said this. It's not just about jobs or, uh, or housing. These things are meshed together. And so unless you can decouple them and really start working on the multifaceted issues for Black people and the massive investments that are needed. I'll stop there because I could go on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, first of all, I want to say I'm glad that you got my setup of explaining the difference between income and wealth. I tried to be, you see how smooth I was. (laughs) 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 And the difference is like, I got a good job. Ain't I? (laughs) (laughs) Barely making a paycheck to paycheck. Listen, okay. Right. Because in part, it's also about us knowing about 
how the market works and how financial literacy works. So that is part of the equation too. So we as black people have to say, hey, you know, what am I doing if I'm spending, if I'm making a bunch of money and then, you know, I'm not, I'm not accumulating anything. Mm -hmm. That's part of this data center as well, meaning that understanding how I can build wealth as an individual and then, then understanding how I can use my wealth to help others. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more on Sunday Civics. How can it be that you love the most unlovable part of me? Of me. How could you see your life was the only gift I left to be free? Welcome back to Sunday Civics. So, so Eljoy, if I might, I just want to talk about what is actually available at the data center, because I think it's important for your listeners, especially from a civic context, to understand who this is for and what they can find. First of all, you know, our goal was to it is is with through this data center to be the go to resource for any leader so whether that is a, you know, the, the president of the NAACP chapter or or a person sitting in a city hall somewhere or someone on a legislative team that is sitting in the hill and, and starting to write policies and hopefully creating those on-ramps that we talked about that are missing. Or if it's a business leader trying to figure out which city do I want to go and create my new business in we are seeing this as a practical tool for any leader that is trying to make an investment decision, trying to create a program or a policy decision to find the data and, and, and hopefully help create and spur Black wealth. So what's in there? We, as a starting point, have created what we are calling a racial wealth equity database. That database is pulling from 30 different sources those sources are sources that you can find individually, like the census, for instance. But we wanted to pull them all into one category. Most of the data that is there right now is from the federal government. We pulled it together to make it as easy as possible for people to correlate, see the correlations between different categories of data. So 30 different sources and then several categories of types of data. So we've got data about assets and debt there. We've got data, data about education, employment, business ownership, and home ownership. We think this is the ground floor. So we had to start somewhere. We think this is a really, really good start that people can see all of this data and manipulate this data through easy to use charts and click down and choosing, you know, what they want to see in these these six categories. This is just the beginning. The team, the data center team will be continuously ingesting new and more data. We have partnerships with organizations like the National Neighborhood Indicators Project and Urban Institute in order to to think about local data and, and getting more of that data there. But right now, today, the, the website is live. People can click on and hopefully we know cut their time, their research time, cut their 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 pretend like they are a data expert, you know, because some of these sources you go to and individually and you would have to spend weeks and, and months and sometimes even years trying to figure out how to analyze it. 
So we've tried to make that as user-friendly as possible for people to be able to access this data. I mean, at Bloomberg Philanthropies, as you all know, Mike was, was a mayor. I worked in several mayor's offices and, and I know how hard it is when you're trying to actually serve people and you're trying to get the information in a pinch and, and you're trying to go before your city council or something to introduce some really new program, you really need, you need data to make the case, to have an evidence base for what you're trying to do. And so we hope that this resource and part of the reason why we're really excited about funding this new initiative is because it is so in line with, with what the Bloomberg Philanthropies Greenwood Initiative is trying to do. And that is, you know, how do we actually empower leaders to, to sort of take this issue in their hands and really have the support to push for the policies and the programs and the practices that would create intergenerational wealth? Garnisha, listen, I appreciate that as someone who, in addition to my role, you know, being president of Brooklyn NAACP, I also write the state NAACP's legislative agenda. And so I'm getting ready to put to, you know, just before we do our new agenda for the new year, I bring some folks together and we all come in a conference room and, you know, we bring all of our the reports we read over the summer and all of the different things or whatever. And it's just like, okay, what's going to be, you know, our agenda What's something, you know, talk to legislators, what bills are they introducing? And so I was doing some, some research and some work yesterday and I was like, Ooh, how many black fathers play, how many black people pay child support in New York state? And like, what is the percentage that the state, you know, I'm just trying to pull data. (laughs) I had to go through 50 million different sources. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, Jesus, like, and like so many different tables and then don't get, now I got to pivot stuff and all this other stuff. And I was like, I just need how many people pay child support in the state of New York. That's all I need. (laughs) Like what the total is because I'm trying to come up with, you know, with something that relates to child support payments and and baby bonds and trying to do this like, oh, could we do a portion of the payments going to this that would help actually build like college you know i'm trying to come up with something creative but it took me a whole day like i spent all my time i budgeted four hours to work on the thing and i spent all my time just looking for the simple answer how many black people play child support in the state of new york (laughs) and let me just let me just add two two quick things to that i think that what we have found you know one issue with the data Underlying all this is is the availability of data disaggregated by race. And and, and that sounds real wonky and people are like, what do you what are you talking about? I I was getting ready to ask you that. (laughs) I I want to be able to look across a wide range of issues, whether it is, as you said, child support or in our case, when we're looking at wealth issues and wealth categories, when I want to look at, you know, what different types of assets and say, you know, how many black people have, you know, 401ks, how, what type of assets are we, are we really thriving in and what type of assets are we not? When we want to look at that data, we don't want to see some bubbled up number that says the average American has this this amount saved we want to be able to see what is it about black people about you know our latino community we want to look at every category and so 
that is the data that we are trying to pull in and ingest in this racial wealth equity database. We hope that our network that's created through the Black Wealth Data Center will help advocate for more data because there are places in this country at every level that data is being collected, but we're not, it's not transparent and it's not available to the public. So we hope this effort will not just be about creating the tools, but also about bringing together a network of folks who can really advocate for better data. Even if you're not that data person that is going to sit there with pivot charts, we, we, <laughs> we think that people should be concerned about this. So that's, that's the first thing I wanted to say. And then the second thing is as a funder and, and from a philanthropic side, you know, my concern is that we have organizations like Prosperity Now. Prosperity Now has been committed to this issue for years and years and years and years. And Gary has done really great at building the support and the funding for this organization. And they are doing rock star type of stuff. They have a huge network of organizations that really rely on Prosperity Now to connect them to the issues and to advocate for racial wealth equity. Why should Prosperity Now and the folks that work there be spending their resources on cleaning data, on you know trying to bring it together? Because they have the experts there that can actually analyze the data, they can create and elevate policies and programs. And we are thinking there are so many other organizations like Prosperity Now that are doing the work that need the data to be more powerful and, and to, to be able to look at deeper analysis and take it from there. And so the data center is meant to be a resource, not only for the individual, not only for the leader, but also for the organizations that have been, you know, and have been and that are really trying to create and sustain this movement for racial wealth equity. So that's that's something that gets me really excited is that our organizations can say, OK, we can stop spending our time and energy on that piece. We can get that from the data center and so that we can do more and, and deeper work in the future. Right. So, Gary, how do people access this information that Garnisha very well wrapped up in terms of how it can be useful? And just even thinking about our role as advocates in police accountability, right? The data is more focused on building Black wealth, but, you know, we put a data component when we did on in New York City Council level and doing some reforms on policing and adding that that category for when a police police officer does a stop for them to do right that racial categorization so we can see is there an increase in mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. in terms of who you're pulling over who you're you know who you're stopping and things like that because it wasn't there right so that data will then allow us to say yep just as we suspected, <laughs> y'all are pulling them up, you know, y'all are pulling more black people than anybody else. And black people don't even live over here. Anyway, um, <laughs> you just so, magically so, found black people to do it. <laughs> so first of all, let me say for your audience, blackwealthdata.org, blackwealthdata, all one word, .org. You can go to that site today. You don't need to be an academic. You don't need to be somebody that's sophisticated, you know, et cetera. You just go on there and say, I'm interested in learning about how many black people in my neighborhood own homes. 
You can go on there, you know. And so, so this is this is what they call democratizing data, right? <laughs> Meaning, you know, data is running the world, right? And we're not part of that. So this is a revolutionary step in us Black people being part of using data to transform our current circumstances. And by having data that's irrefutable, that's nonpartisan, that's, that's data that is trusted, you know, because you have all of this stuff out there and people are, are lying and false facts and all this kind of stuff, this data is solid. There won't be like, oh, that ain't true. If, you, if you're using the data out of the Black Wealth Data Center, you will know that it is not tainted data. It is actually coming to you in the way that you can use. So translating data so that it's actually usable for advocates, for politicians, for folks that are actually trying to write research papers, what have you, is what this data center will do and, and can do. And we're just at the beginning. So this is like the starting line because the potential of what this data can do and how it can transform communities is just like at the starting gate. So that's how they can access the data. And then, you know, there'll be help online. And I, I just want to put this in because Garnisha and I have talked about this a lot. We're also a people of strength. Black people actually, because of everything we've been through, bring a lot of strength to the day. This country wouldn't be the democracy that it is without the civil rights movement, for example, that Black people bled, died, and suffered for, for this country to live up to what the blank check that Martin Luther King talks about. So, so this data and this information is really about creating a movement. We want to create a renaissance a black wealth renaissance in this country. And so this is the beginning of that because we can't build wealth in black communities or build economic vitality in black communities based on a deficit model. And so we are also looking at how do we build on our strength as black people? We talked about our grandmothers and our grandfathers and, and, and they brought us strength. And now it's time for us to put something on the table that actually moves this to the next level. And so we stand on their shoulders and now others will stand on ours from this work. Well, I want to thank you both for taking the time to share with us this morning. I will be going <laughs> to blackwealthdata.org. So I would spend four hours looking for <laughs> If you can't find it, we do have a, a little section on there to say, what is the, what is the data that you're looking for? It won't be immediate, but the team is going to be building from, from here. This is, this is our starting. All I'm saying right is here. don't get mad at me when you got like 10 requests. <laughs> Just say L joy Williams, L joy would like to know. No, so, <laughs> thank you so very much. Gardnesha and Gary for joining us for this great conversation. I feel like we could have gone on for a whole nother hour in talking about how we can address this and how we can actually use this data and information to make change in our communities and build up Black wealth. Thanks to you to both of you. And I hope you'll come back on to the front of the class to talk about more here on Sunday Civics. But thank you. Eljoy, thank you. You are a miracle. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. 
And thanks to all of you for making it to class this Sunday. We'll be back next Sunday with more of Sunday Civics, those civics lessons you need to take civic action. Have a great one. (laughs) 